The House will return on Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. The Senate will return on Monday and stay in session through Thursday or possibly Friday, depending on what happens with the spending bill. Last week on the House floor, they were in recess, no action. This week on the House floor, the House will return to work Tuesday, first vote scheduled for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider no fewer than 38 different bills under suspension of the rules, including S-2554, the Patient Right to Know Drug Prices Act, which passed the Senate last week. On Wednesday, the House has another 16 bills teed up for consideration under suspension of the rules. Also scheduled for a vote on Wednesday is H. Res. 1071, recognizing that allowing illegal immigrants the right to vote devalues the franchise and diminishes the voting power of United States citizens. This resolution is offered by Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy and is seen by many as a swipe at Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who represents San Francisco, which earlier this year began allowing illegal immigrants to register to vote in school board elections based on the results of a 2016 referendum. Then the House is slated to take up the conference report accompanying H.R. 6157, the massive appropriations bill that combined the spending bill for the Department of Defense with the spending bill for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education and related agencies. This bill also contains a continuing resolution to keep the rest of the government open for business through December 7. There are three more bills teed up for action, all of which are part of what the Ways and Means Committee is calling Tax Reform 2.0. Those bills are H.R. 6757, the Family Savings Act of 2018, sponsored by Representative Mike Kelly. H.R. 6756, the American Innovation Act of 2018, sponsored by Representative Vern Buchanan. And H.R. 6760, the Protecting Family and Small Business Tax Cuts Act of 2018, sponsored by Representative Rodney Davis. Each was passed out of the Ways and Means Committee markup session last week on straight party line votes. These bills would make permanent the individual tax cuts that were contained in last year's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which would otherwise expire in 2025 and lead to a massive tax hike on individuals. The likelihood is better than 50-50 that this will be the last week the House is in session until after the November elections. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate came back to work on Monday and took up H.R. 6, the Opioids Bill, and S-2554, the Patient Right to Know Drug Prices Act. S-2554 passed by a vote of 98 to 2, and H.R. 6 passed by a vote of 99 to 1. On Tuesday, the Senate voted by 92 to 8 to invoke cloture on the conference report to accompany H.R. 6157, the massive appropriations bill that combined the spending bill for the Department of Defense with the spending bill for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education and related agencies, and contained within it a continuing resolution. Then the Senate voted by 93 to 7 to pass that turkey and send it back to the House. Also on Tuesday, by voice vote, the Senate passed H.R. 1551, the Orrin G. Hatch Music Modernization Act, and then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, they'll come back to work on Monday with first votes set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to two roll call votes. The first will be an on-block vote to confirm Jackie Walcott to be U.S. representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency and to confirm her to be U.S. representative to the Vienna Office of the United Nations. The second will be a vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Peter Feldman to be a commissioner of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. It's possible the, the Senate could also vote this week to confirm Judge Brett Kavanaugh to a seat on the Supreme Court. On the FBI Department of Justice front, 
On Monday of last week, President Trump directed the release of a bunch of text messages from former FBI Director James Comey and ordered the declassification of 20 pages of a FISA surveillance warrant application that targeted former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page. He also called for the release of former senior DOJ official Bruce Orr's notes on the Russia probe. In addition, read the White House announcement, President Donald J. Trump has directed the Department of Justice, including the FBI, to publicly release all text messages relating to the Russia investigation without redaction of James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, and Bruce Orr. Democrats and the media predictably went nuts, claiming this would put national security at risk. By Friday, the president had heard from at least two foreign allied intelligence services asking him not to release classified information. The New York Times reported that the British government was one of those allies. He announced via Twitter on Friday morning that he had decided to retreat, announcing that instead of an immediate public release of all the documents, he would ask the DOJ inspector general to review the documents on an expedited basis. He held open the possibility of him ordering them all declassified at a later date if need be. Friday afternoon, attention was diverted from the president's declassification orders back to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein when the New York Times reported in a bombshell that Rosenstein had suggested wearing a wire to secretly record the president and had discussed having the cabinet invoke the 25th Amendment as a means to remove President Trump from power. Wrote the Times, quote, the Deputy Attorney General Rod J. Rosenstein suggested last year that he secretly record President Trump in the White House to expose the chaos consuming the administration, and he discussed recruiting cabinet members to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Mr. Trump from office for being unfit. Mr. Rosenstein made these suggestions in the spring of 2017 when Mr. Trump's firing of James B. Comey as FBI director plunged the White House into turmoil. Over the ensuing days, the president divulged classified intelligence to Russians in the Oval Office, and revelations emerged that Mr. Trump had asked Mr. Comey to pledge loyalty and end an investigation into a senior aide. Mr. Rosenstein was just two weeks into his job. He had begun overseeing the Russia investigation and played a key role in the president's dismissal of Mr. Comey by writing a memo critical of his handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation. But Mr. Rosenstein was caught off guard when Mr. Trump cited the memo in the firing, and he began telling people that he feared he had been used. Mr. Rosenstein made the remarks about secretly recording Mr. Trump and about the 25th Amendment in meetings and conversations with other Justice Department and FBI officials. Several people described the episodes in interviews over the past several months, insisting on anonymity to discuss internal deliberations. The people were briefed either on the events themselves or on memos written by FBI officials, including Andrew G. McCabe, then the acting bureau director, that documented Mr. Rosenstein's actions and comments. None of Mr. Rosenstein's proposals apparently came to fruition. It is not clear how determined he was about seeing them through, though he did tell Mr. McCabe that he might be able to persuade Attorney General Jeff Sessions and John F. Kelly, then the Secretary of Homeland Security and now the White House Chief of Staff, to mount an effort to invoke the 25th Amendment. The extreme suggestions show Mr. Rosenstein's state of mind in the disorienting days that followed Mr. Comey's dismissal. Sitting in on Mr. Trump's interviews with prospective FBI directors and facing attacks for his own role in Mr. Comey's firing, Mr. Rosenstein had an up-close view of the tumult. 
Mr. Rosenstein appeared conflicted, regretful, and emotional, according to people who spoke with him at the time. Mr. Rosenstein disputed this account. Quote, the New York Times story is inaccurate and factually incorrect, he said in a statement. Quote, I will not further comment on a story based on anonymous sources who are obviously biased against the department and are advancing their own personal agenda. But let me be clear about this. Based on my personal dealings with the president, there is no basis to invoke the 25th Amendment. End quote. The president is reported to have responded to publication of the piece by asking allies inside the White House and out if he should fire Rosenstein. Almost all of them, including his favorite Fox News hosts and leaders of the House Freedom Caucus, advised against it. Some even suggested the story was bait for a trap. Moving to the Supreme Court front, I'm not going to take up any more time than necessary to detail the ups and downs of the Kavanaugh confirmation circus. Suffice it to say the following. On Monday morning, it was the position of the Senate Judiciary Committee that there was no need to hold a hearing to allow Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, Judge Kavanaugh's accuser, to testify. That was a legally strong but politically untenable position. By late afternoon, that had changed, and Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley had extended to her an invitation to share with the Judiciary Committee her testimony in whatever form worked best for her. Grassley offered her a public hearing or a private hearing or a phone call with her or an interview with Judiciary Committee staffers or even having Judiciary Committee staffers fly to California to interview her. Her lawyers didn't respond for several days. This, even though her first attorney had said on TV on Monday morning that she wanted to share her story with the Judiciary Committee. They contented themselves with hiding behind Senate Democrats, who demanded a full FBI investigation of the allegations and said that without an FBI investigation, it wouldn't be fair to Dr. Ford. Of course, the FBI isn't the proper law enforcement agency to investigate this allegation for the simple reason that what is alleged to have happened is not a federal crime. The proper investigating authorities would have been local prosecutors in Maryland, but the alleged incident occurred 36 years ago. And there's no possibility of locating forensic evidence. And at this point, we are way beyond the statute of limitations for whatever offense may have been committed anyway. Of course, in our system of justice, eyewitness testimony under oath is evidence. The problem for Dr. Ford and her accusations is that every other person she alleges was there at the party in question denies having been there. And they have done so under penalty of perjury, under questioning by Judiciary Committee staff. She, for the record, has yet to say anything under oath. What we have here is an allegation that is unproven and unprovable. By midweek, everyone was wondering, what was the deal? Was she going to testify or not? Her lawyers finally responded to Grassley with a set of conditions. She would agree to come to Washington to testify if her conditions were met, they said. Among those conditions, she would never be in the same room as Kavanaugh. She would not be interviewed by staff or outside counsel, but would be questioned only by senators. Security precautions would have to be arranged for her satisfaction. She would give the committee a list of witnesses she wanted questioned, and Kavanaugh would testify first. It appears that Grassley agreed to several of the conditions, but he held firm on the important ones. The committee would decide who was going to ask her questions. Only she and Kavanaugh were going to testify, and Kavanaugh was going to testify after she was done with her testimony, abiding by the principle that the burden is on the accuser to prove the allegation, and the accused has the right to hear the case against him before responding. Chairman Grassley released a statement on Friday morning inviting Dr. Ford one final time to work with committee staff to make arrangements for her testimony this coming week. 
He also said that if she declined the invitation, then he would take the Monday meeting time that had already been arranged for their testimony and use it instead as a business meeting of the committee, at which time the committee would consider and vote on the Kavanaugh nomination. First, the deadline for her lawyers to respond was set at Friday morning at 10 a.m. Then the deadline was moved to Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. Then the deadline was moved again to Friday evening at 10 p.m. Then the deadline was moved yet again to accommodate her. On Saturday afternoon, her lawyers responded by telling Grassley that Dr. Ford would like to testify before the Judiciary Committee this week, and they looked forward to working out the details of that testimony. The media went nuts, saying she had, quote, accepted Grassley's invitation. But, of course, if her lawyers are still working out terms, that means by definition they have not accepted Grassley's terms, which means we really haven't moved at all from where we were a week ago except the Democrats are one week closer to delaying the Kavanaugh nomination beyond the elections in November. Late Saturday evening, it was reported that Dr. Ford had agreed to testify in front of the Judiciary Committee on Thursday. The rest of the details remain to be worked out. On the spending front, finally, when the, White House, when the House returns on Tuesday, there will be four legislative days left before the end of the fiscal year, which occurs next Sunday, September 30. On Wednesday, as noted above, the House will take up the conference report attached to H.R. 6157, the two-bill minibus that combines spending for the Department of Defense with the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, Education, and related agencies, and which also contains a continuing resolution to fund the rest of those parts of the government that have not yet been funded. Because it combines a mini-omnibus bill with a continuing resolution, it's called a cromnibus. In order for the government to remain open beyond next Sunday, of course, both houses of Congress have to pass the bill and the president has to sign it into law. The Senate passed it last week and the House will likely pass it this week. But late last week, President Trump raised eyebrows with a tweet suggesting he just might not sign the bill. Tweeted he on Thursday morning, quote, I want to know where is the money for the border security and the wall in this ridiculous spending bill, and where will it come from after the midterms? Dems are obstructing law enforcement and border security. Republicans must finally get tough, he added in all caps. As always, stay tuned. That's our Washington Report for this week.